The sermon text today is Psalm 16. We'll, we'll eventually read it, but we will read first from the New Testament, Luke 24, verses 1 through 12. And if you were here on, on Good Friday, you know this is a continuation of, of our readings from, from the Good Friday service. There we read in the Gospel of Luke all the way up through uh, the crucifixion and eventual burial of Christ. But here, of course, uh, we have a passage that tells us, tells us of the resurrection of Christ. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. Luke 24. Verse 1. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Let's go now to Psalm chapter 16. Psalm 16, rather, not chapter, but Psalm 16. Psalm 16. And let's begin with the title of this psalm, A Mictum of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion, and my cup you hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel, and the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me, because He is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So far the reading of God's most holy word. We pray that He would add the blessing to the preaching of the word this morning. On Tuesday I had the privilege of conducting a graveside service for the stepfather of one of our members. The cemetery was a very beautiful place. It was set up on a hill overlooking the city of Whittier in the greater Los Angeles area. The grass was very green. The trees were mature. It was a beautiful day. And after the service, I did what I usually do whenever I'm in a cemetery. I began to read the inscriptions on the gravestones 
All of them had names and dates. Most had little phrases to honor the person buried there, loving mother, beloved father, etc. This might sound strange to you, but I think spending time in a cemetery is actually good for the soul. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. It, it, it does something to you. I was also reminded that in other places in the world and in times past, cemeteries would actually um, surround church buildings. Did you know that? So that as we come to worship, we'd see the graves of, of those who've gone before us, the graves uh, of, of pastors, former ministers, and maybe even former members of, of the church. I, there's something good for the soul about spending time in a cemetery. There's something healthy about watching the body of another being laid to rest in the earth. There's something sobering about reading gravestones. All of this should move us to think, someday people will have a service like this for me. That thought occurred to me at that graveside service this last week. Someday people will have a service like this for me. Someday my body will also be laid to rest in the earth. That is, unless the Lord returns before I die. I say it is healthy for the soul because it should move us to live each moment of our lives with the grave in mind. It should move us to remember that our time here is, is very short, that death will touch us all, and that only God can preserve us through death. And how will He preserve us? How will He deliver us, body and soul, from death? The answer is this, through faith in Christ, who died for our sins and on the third day was raised from the grave. In victory. After the graveside service on, on Tuesday, a young man approached me. He was a teenager, I think. He seemed to be serious. He seemed to be very thoughtful. And he simply asked me this question, so what's next? As he pointed over to the grave of his relative that was now being filled in. This was obviously an opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with this young man, and so I proceeded to share with what the Scriptures teach regarding, regarding death, regarding the temporary separation of the body from the soul. The body goes into the grave and the soul goes either to the presence of God or to Hades. I told him about the resurrection of the body when the Lord returns, the final judgment, hell and the new heavens and earth. And of course I impressed upon him that we must be found in Christ, for in Him we have the forgiveness of sins and the hope of life everlasting. It was really a wonderful moment. It was also a bit sobering and surreal, as you probably could imagine, given, given the setting, given the situation. And I do pray that the Lord would draw that young man to, to faith in Christ. But here is the point. It was the grave that prompted him to ask the question, so what's next? What happens after this, and it will never cease to amaze me how few will take the time to ask the question, so what's next? Loved ones pass away and people act surprised as if they did not know that it would happen, you know? It happens. Life is marked by death. And we mourn, do we not? But we should not be surprised by it. And men and women attend memorials and graveside services, and then they walk away without considering that they too will be laid in the earth someday. What's next? You, you would think that it would be the question on everyone's mind. Is there hope for life beyond the grave? The psalm that is before us today is about this. Psalm 16 is a psalm of David. 
That is what the title says, a mictum of David. A mictum was probably a musical or liturgical term. We don't know exactly what it means. But it is said to be of David. So this psalm, like Psalm 18, which we considered last week and many other psalms, was written by David, the king of Israel. And after the opening line of this psalm, the psalm is divided into two parts. And I think the two parts mirror each other. In verses 2 through 6, David confesses that all of his trust, all of his hope is set in the Lord. I think that is what is going on in the first half of this psalm. David is confessing that all of his hope is set in the Lord. And then in verses 7 through 11, David gives glory to the Lord who is trustworthy and deserving of all praise. And I think if we were to analyze this psalm carefully, we would find that verse 7 corresponds to verse 2, 8 corresponds to 3, 9 to 4, 10 to 5, 11 to 1. That was stated very rapidly. My manuscripts are available online all the time. You understand that. You could look that up later. Um, There is a structure to this psalm, I think. And it is good for us to keep the structure in mind. But the outline for the sermon today is really very simple. It goes like this. In Psalm 16 we find, 1, the confession of a faithful servant... Two, concerning the Lord who is faithful and worthy of all our trust. Indeed, we find that He, the Lord, is to be trusted even for life beyond the grave. So let us first consider the confession of King David, the Lord's faithful servant. And by faithful, I do not only mean obedient. Indeed, those who are faithful to the Lord are obedient. They strive to keep God's law. And David, as imperfect as he was did certainly strive to keep God's law as a faithful servant of the Lord. But by faithful I also mean full of faith. Who are the faithful ones? Yes, they are those who strive to obey God. But before this they trust in Him. So do you wish to be numbered amongst the faithful ones? That is a question I have for you. Do you wish to be numbered amongst the faithful ones? Then then I say do not start and end with obedience. Start instead with faith. Start with trust, and then after believing upon God and the Christ that He has sent, continue in the faith with obedience. This might seem like the splitting of a hair to you, but it is in fact the difference between true and false religion. The self-righteous say, I will earn God's favor through my obedience, but they never do. They cannot. This is because all are in sin. But the faithful say, I will trust in God and in Christ who has paid for all my sins, and then I will serve Him out of gratitude. This is what the faithful ones do. They trust and they obey. King David was faithful, and by this I mean he was full of faith. Consider the opening line of this psalm. You will notice that it is not a commitment, but it is a cry for help. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. It is a cry for help here. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Preserve me, he says. Guard me. Watch over me. Keep me. And friends, we must recognize this. God is the creator of all things seen and unseen. But we should not forget that he is also the preserver of all things seen and unseen. He creates and then he upholds. He gives life and he sustains life. This is a very humbling truth. We do like to think of ourselves as self-sufficient. But we are not self-sufficient. Not in the least bit. And this should be clear to anyone who would take the time to think about it. You did not create yourself, did you? You did not bring yourself into this world. No, 
you were born, and this was according to the will of God. And even now you are dependent upon many things for your existence. You are dependent upon air, water, food, and other things external to yourself. Above all, you are dependent on God, for as Paul and others have said, in Him we live and move and have our being. For we are indeed His offspring. God preserves us, He holds us in His hand, He sustains us, He shelters us. David knew this, and so he cried out to God, saying, Preserve me, O God. And it will soon become clear that he was concerned with being preserved, not merely in this life, but also through death and in the life to come. And friends, consider this. If it is true that God must preserve us in this life, how much more so that He must preserve us through death and in the life to come. We cannot preserve ourselves through the trial of death, can we? We cannot do anything for ourselves when we are put into that grave and when our souls go before our Maker. God must preserve us through the trial of death and in the life to come. And so David cried out, Preserve me, O God. And then he said, For in you I take refuge. I would like to make two remarks about the word refuge. One, the word refuge communicates preservation again, but this time with more of an emphasis on preservation through trouble. And so the thought is advanced here. Preserve me, O Lord, not only in the good times, but also in times of trouble. And as I've already said, it will become clear in a moment that David has not only the troubles of this life in mind, but the trial of death itself. Where did King David flee for refuge? Did he trust in his army? Did he trust in his great wealth? Did he trust in his fortress? Not ultimately. He trusted in the Lord. He knew that only the Lord could deliver him, body and soul, even through the trial of death. Two, the word refuge should remind us of what we heard at the conclusion of Psalm 2. You remember that Psalms 1 and 2 function as the introduction to the Psalter. And in Psalm 2, after the truth concerning our sin and the final judgment were expressed, we, we heard the gospel, kiss the Son, we were told. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. And so with this blessing, with this declaration, we were sent on our way to consider the rest of the Psalms. Blessed are all who take refuge in the Son, the Lord's anointed. And if you were to look up all of the occurrences of this Hebrew word translated as refuge you would find that it occurs very frequently in the Psalms, and especially in the first book of the Psalter, that is to say in Psalms 3 through 41. Psalm 2 says, Blessed are all who take refuge in the Son. And in the first book of the Psalter, this is what we find David and others doing, or encouraging others to do continuously. They take refuge in the Son, and they encourage others to do the same. Um, I have here in my manuscript a number of texts listed if you wish to look them up on your own later on today. God is our refuge and strength. Psalm 34, 8 says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Psalm 36, 7, How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. And Psalm 57, 1 says, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, 
For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. Have you taken refuge in the Lord? We must. Blessed are those who take refuge in Him. I've already taught you that the Psalms are about Jesus. And so it is right for us to hear these words as David's words, but even more so, they are the words of Jesus, the Messiah. David was faithful, but not as faithful as Jesus. David trusted in the Lord to preserve him, but Jesus trusted even more. And when Jesus hung on that cross, he cried out with a loud voice saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And so Jesus entrusted himself to the Father always, and especially at the moment of death. More than this, when David placed his trust in the Lord, he was in fact placing his trust in Jesus, the Lord's, who is the Lord's anointed, who would descend from him according to the promise of God. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. What a marvelous declaration this is. And so again I ask you, have you run to the Lord and to His Messiah for refuge? Is He your security, your strength, your stronghold? Or is your hope placed in something else? And you must know this, all else will fail you in the end, my friends. Only the Lord and His anointed can deliver you from death. After this initial plea for help, verses 2 through 6 consist of four declarations or confessions. These are the confessions of one who has placed their trust in the Lord. And so I think they will serve as a kind of litmus test for us. In other words, these are the things that one who is faithful or full of faith will say. And so as we consider David's confessions or declarations, we might ask the question, Have I made the same confession? Do do I say the same thing? First of all, the psalmist says, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. The Lord, Yahweh, was David's Lord or Master, Adonai. And so I ask, Is the Lord your Lord? Is the Lord your Lord? Now the Lord is the Lord whether or not He is your Lord. I hope you understand this. Even if the whole world were to deny God, God would still be God. For He does not depend upon us. No, instead we depend upon Him. But when I ask you, is the Lord your Lord? I am asking you, have you bowed the knee before Him? Have you acknowledged Him as supreme? Is He your authority? Are you His servant? The Scriptures are so very clear about this, that to be saved... That is, to have your sins forgiven, one must have Jesus as Lord. Romans 10.9 says it so directly, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. So if we wish to have Jesus as Savior, we must have Him as Lord. If He is not your Lord, then He is not your Savior. Instead, He is only your Judge. And this is why it is such a contradiction for someone to claim to believe in Christ, but to live as if they are ruled by someone else. Those who believe in Jesus do also serve Him. And so again I ask, is the Lord your Lord? Have you bowed the knee before God and His Anointed One? You are my Lord is David's leading confession. 
And this must be the leading confession of all of God's people. We must come to God and say, You are my Lord, Jesus is Lord. But then David adds these wonderful words, I have no good apart from you, he says. I have no good apart from you. If you compare English Bible translations, you will see that this Hebrew phrase is a little bit difficult to translate, for there are many different renditions of it. But the meaning is clear, I think. David is here confessing that the Lord is Himself His greatest good, and that every other good thing that He enjoys comes from God's hand. I have no good apart from you, David says. This same idea is found in Psalm 73, 25, where Asaph speaks to the Lord, saying, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. I do love how David's confession, You are my Lord, is paired together with his confession, I have no good apart from you. The declaration, You are my Lord, is prone to be misunderstood. It can be taken to mean that David's relationship to the Lord is characterized by slavish fear, distance, formality, coldness, and dryness. Indeed, this is the kind of relationship that many servants have with their earthly masters. You know, you are my Lord. Well, that can communicate something there. But no, though Yahweh is David's Lord, we see here that Yahweh is also David's delight. And so how is it for you, my friends? I hope Jesus is your Lord. I hope you have bowed the knee before Him. I do hope that you serve Him faithfully. But I pray that you also love Him. I pray that you love Him knowing that He has set His love upon you. So think of this for a moment. David, King David, a man of great power and wealth, spoke to the Lord saying, I have no good apart from you. In other words, you, O Lord, are my greatest good. You, O Lord, are my treasure. You, O Lord, are my delight. David did not merely delight in the gifts of the Lord. He delighted in the Lord Himself. And this too should be the confession of all of God's faithful. I'm not saying that it's a separate confession from the first one, but a companion confession. When we say Jesus is Lord, we do not mean that He is merely our Master, distant, harsh, and cold. No, we mean to say that He is our Master and Friend. He is our Lord and Savior. He is our Ruler, but He is also our Delight. What is the greatest commandment, friends? What is the greatest commandment? The one that sums up that first table of the law? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Deuteronomy 6.5 We are to love the Lord. We are not merely to serve Him. We are to serve Him because we love Him. The Lord is to be our Lord, but He is also to be our delight. And I think the mature in Christ understand this. The mature in Christ do not merely obey Christ out of duty. No, they obey Him as they delight in Him. Perhaps you have heard it said that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Have you ever heard that? I think there is truth in that statement. It's very true. Yes, we glorify God when we obey Him, but more than this, we glorify God when we take refuge in Him, when we trust Him and obey Him because we delight in Him. 
Look now to verse 3. It is there that we find David's second confession. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. So those who are faithful delight in God, and they also delight in God's people. Who are the saints? Well, they are those whose sins have been washed away by the blood of Christ. Or to use the language of this psalm, they are those who have taken refuge in the Lord and in His anointed. The saints are those who delight in God and have believed in the Son. As David looked out upon his kingdom, he saw saints and he saw sinners. Of course, saints are sinners too, but they have been washed and renewed. David saw the godly and the ungodly, and he considered the saints to be the excellent ones. He delighted in them, he cherished their companionship, for they shared God in common. This is what bound them together. They believed upon God and in His promises, and they delighted in the Lord. Verse 4, we find another declaration. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. So just as the word refuge was to remind us of Psalm 2, I think this statement is to remind us of Psalm 1, which says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. David is here showing us that he has taken the right path. He perceives that though the wicked might prosper for a time in this world, their end is destruction, and he has determined to not walk, stand, nor sit with them. His delight is in the Lord, his delight is in the Lord's people, and he will not associate with the wicked in their wickedness. And so I wonder if you could see the connection here between the first declaration and the second and third. David claimed to delight in God above all else. I have no good apart from you, he said. And this delight for God which was hidden away in his heart did manifest itself through his associations. Because David loved God above all else, he also loved to assemble and to associate with God's people. But he refused to associate with the wicked in their wickedness, for his heart was not with them. To put the matter most directly... If we truly delight in God, then we should also delight in God's people and refuse to associate with the wicked in their wickedness, whatever form it takes. In verses 5 and 6, we find the fourth of David's four confessions. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Like verse 2, verse 5 is a little difficult to translate from Hebrew into English. Again, you can see this by comparing English translations. Uh, there is great diversity in the translations. But again, the meaning is clear. David is here saying, I have an inheritance awaiting me. I have a portion even now. And it is the Lord. I wonder, did you hear me? I have an inheritance. I have a portion even now. And what is that inheritance? David says, it is the Lord. And David did not say, I have an inheritance awaiting me and I have a portion even now and it comes from the Lord. No, the Lord Himself is David's heritage and portion. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup, he says. And I think this is truly marvelous. Again, King David, a man of great power and wealth, considered all of his possessions and says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. In other words, all that I have, this is the one thing that really matters, belonging to the Lord, knowing Him and having Him as Lord and as God. This reminds me of what Paul said. 
after telling us of all that he had in this world, you know, he kind of presented all of his credentials to us there in Philippians 3. He moved on to say this, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He said, as I consider all of the things in this world... They're like garbage to me when compared to knowing Christ, having Christ as my own, having Him as as my Lord. That is what Paul considered to be of surpassing worth. And that is what David also considered to be of surpassing worth. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup, he says. When all is considered, I wish to have the Lord. Everything else pales in comparison When the psalmist says, you hold my lot, and the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, he means to express contentment with his lot in life, and gratitude for the Lord's blessing upon him. Here the psalmist is expressing contentment. Contentment, brothers and sisters, is a great gift. Paul says this, godliness with contentment is great gain, 1 Timothy 6.6. And I suppose that we might be tempted to say, well, of course, David was content with his lot in life and with the lines that the Lord drew for him, for he was king. He had great power. He had great wealth. We'll go ahead and review the story of David's life sometime. Though he would eventually become king and though he would eventually have great power and wealth, his life was marked by hardship. His life was marked by heartache. And yet he was content with God's will for him. He was content to have God as his portion. I found that many people struggle with discontentment. In fact, I think discontentment is a major problem within our society. It is a root problem. Stated differently, I have found that many struggle to keep the tenth of the Ten Commandments, which says, Thou shalt not covet. It is so easy for us to fixate on what we do not have, or on what others have that we wish we had, be it money, possessions, status, or privilege. But God has called us to be content in Him. Contentment, brothers and sisters, is not complacency. These two things are not the same. To be content is to be satisfied and at peace concerning God's will for you. To be content is to be satisfied and at peace with having God as your chosen portion and your cup. We are to find our contentment in the Lord. I think you could see the connection. If God is our delight, if God is our chosen portion, then we will find our contentment in Him rather than in the things of this world. And so even the very poor and the downtrodden may find their contentment in God when they say to Him, You are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. And so too the rich and powerful may find true contentment in Him. If we, if we wish to be content, we must find our contentment in the Lord. And this is how David concludes this first portion of the psalm. He declares, Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. What is David's inheritance? The Lord is David's beautiful inheritance. The new heavens and earth earned by Christ is David's inheritance. 
And this is the inheritance of all who take refuge in the Messiah. We still need to consider the second half of this psalm. But as you could see or maybe feel, we are well beyond the midpoint of the time allotted for this sermon. So we will move rather quickly through the remainder of this psalm. In verses 2 through 6, David made confessions or declarations regarding his faith. But in verses 7 through 11, David speaks concerning the Lord who is faithful and worthy of all of our trust. The emphasis is there upon the Lord, who he is, what he is, and why he is worthy of all of our trust. As I have said, the second half of this psalm does seem to correspond to the first. Here we do not find confessions or declarations, but rather statements regarding God's goodness and faithfulness. In other words, David is here saying, It is for this reason that I take refuge in the Lord. Have Him as my Lord. Delight in Him. Delight in His people. Flee from the wicked and am content with my inheritance. The second half of this psalm answers the first half. In the first half, David says, This is what is in my heart. My faith is in the Lord. And in the second half, David says, here is why. My faith is in the Lord because He is faithful. He is worthy of all my trust. In verse 7 we read, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I think this corresponds to the declaration of verse 2. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. Here David blessed the Lord. He praises Him and acknowledges that it is the Lord who gives him counsel. The Lord is the source of all his wisdom. And for this reason David has the Lord as his Lord and counselor. In verse 8 we read, I have set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. And I believe this corresponds or relates to verse 3 where David says, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. You say, well, where is the connection there? Well, both verses have to do with companionship and associations. David delighted in the saints of God. He surrounded himself with the faithful ones. But this he did because he desired to have God himself at his right hand. Though it is true that, God, that David delighted in the saints of the Lord, and though it is true that he associated with them, his trust was ultimately in the Lord. It was because the Lord was always before him, and it was because the Lord was at his right hand that David was not shaken. But this manifested itself through his companionship with the saints of the Lord. In verse 9 we read, Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. This corresponds to and contrasts with verse 4, which says, The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. So what do those who, have, have, what do those who run after another god have in their hearts? They, they have sorrow. But what does David say here in verse 9? My heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Now, true it is that the sorrows of those who run after other gods multiply. Their sorrows multiply in this life. You have seen this with your own eyes, haven't you? For they live according to a lie. But their sorrows will certainly multiply at the judgment. But in contrast, David and all who are faithful with him have hearts that are glad. They rejoice. They do not even fear the destruction of their flesh. Let that sink in for just a moment. They do not even fear the destruction of their flesh. Why? In verse 10 we find the answer. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. 
perhaps you have sensed that I have been kind of rushing through a couple of these verses, you know. Um, more could be said about them, but I have been sort of rushing through a couple of these verses in order to get to this one, because I think we finally come to the root of the matter here at verse 10. Here we come to the root of the matter. Why did David trust the Lord? Why did he run to the Lord for refuge? Why did he have the Lord as his Lord? Why did he delight in him and his people? Why did he choose to walk in the way of the righteous and to forsake the way of the wicked? And why was he content in the Lord, being satisfied with the Lord as his inheritance? I'm sure there are many reasons. But the answer that is given here is, he knew that the Lord would keep him even through death. He believed and truly believed that the Lord would not abandon his soul to Sheol or let his Holy One see corruption. Verse 10 is incredibly important. It is the climax of this psalm, for it explains everything that precedes it, and it gets to the root of the matter. The Lord is to be our refuge because He alone can preserve us in this life and through death. He alone can rescue us from Sheol and from the grave. You can easily see how verse 10 explains verse 9. Why was David's heart glad? And why did his whole being rejoice? The answer is found in verse 10, because he knew that God would not abandon his soul to Sheol. You should know that human beings are made up of two parts. We have a body, and we have a soul. Sheol in the Hebrew, or Hades in the Greek, is the term, it is rather the realm, where the souls of the deceased go. Prior to the resurrection of Christ, the wicked were punished there, and the righteous were comforted there. After the resurrection of Christ, the souls of those in Christ go immediately to heaven, where they enjoy the blessed presence of God. But David, writing long before the life, death, and resurrection of Christ was confident, though his soul would go to Sheol after he died, and because David was faithful, his soul would go to, to paradise, or to Abraham's bosom, as it was called, he knew for certain that God would not abandon his soul to Sheol. No, God would keep him and would deliver him from that realm. And why in verse 9 did David say, My flesh also dwells secure? What did he mean by that? Why did he believe that? Uh, didn't he know that his body would eventually die, be put into the grave, and decompose? Did he know that? Of course he knew that. But he was also certain that his flesh would dwell secure. How? How did he know this? Where did he find this, this confidence, this hope? Verse 10 answers this question when it says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Corruption here obviously refers to the destruction of the body. But who is this Holy One mentioned at the end of verse 10? Well, considered on one level, this Holy One is David. He was sure that his body would not be destroyed or lost forever. But I think there is a deeper meaning. We know that the Holy One mentioned in verse 10, is in fact Jesus the Christ, David's greater son. 
You should read the Apostle Peter's sermon that he delivered on the day of Pentecost later today. It's found in Acts chapter 2. And it's there in, in Peter's sermon that we, that we see what the proper interpretation of Psalm 16.10 is. Um, Peter was preaching there on the day of Pentecost and he had many things to say. But eventually he cited Psalm 16 verses 8 through 11, including this phrase, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. So Peter picked up this text. And he used it in his sermon as he preached uh, predominantly to the Jews there and urged them to repent, to turn from their sins and to believe that Jesus is the Christ. He picked up this text and used it in his sermon. And then this is what he said. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, David's body did die And it did see corruption. It went into the grave. But then he goes on. Being therefore a prophet, speaking of David, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He is here referring to the covenant that was made with David. He, David, foresaw and spoke about, now here it is, the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Who is the Holy One of Psalm 1610? It's not David, ultimately. It is Jesus the Christ. It is Jesus the Christ. This Jesus God raised up, Peter says, and of that we are all witnesses. The psalm is about David. It is about David's confession of faith in the Lord who is faithful, but it is really about Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection. Why was David so confident? Why was he so sure? He was confident and sure because he understood that God would provide a Savior for him, a Savior that would rescue him and keep him through the trial of death. God would rescue him body and soul. This Savior is Jesus the Christ, the Son of Abraham, the Son of David, the Son of God. Verse 11 rounds everything out and brings us back to the start. We must run to the Lord and to His anointed for refuge, for He is the one that makes known to us the path of life. In His presence there is fullness of joy. At His right hand are pleasures forevermore. Brothers and sisters, it is good for us to think about death, which is the separation of the body and the soul. And it is good for us to ask the question, what's next? What's next? We know that the body goes into the earth, but the soul goes either to heaven or to Sheol, to paradise or to punishment. But at the end of this age, all will be raised, and all will stand before God the judge. Knowing this, we should then ask, what must I do to be saved? The answer is that we must, in this life, turn from our sins, place our faith in the Christ, and say, Jesus is Lord. And this we are to say through the waters of baptism. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Thanks be to God that He will not abandon us, body or soul. No, He is truly our refuge. 
He will keep us. And this He will do by virtue of the salvation that Christ has accomplished for us in His life, death, burial, and resurrection. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, your plan of salvation is is marvelous. We thank you for your grace and mercy that you did not abandon us. You did not abandon us and leave us to our sin and to the just punishment of, of our sin. But you have determined to rescue us, sinners as we are. And you have determined to rescue us, body and soul. And so we thank you for Jesus the Christ, the eternal Son of God, come in the flesh, who who lived in the flesh for us, who, who suffered in the flesh, body and soul, and who earned the victory over the grave and over Sheol. Father, we thank you for him. I do pray that all who hear this message today, that they would be found in Christ, that they would take refuge in him, as the scriptures exhort us to do. May we know for certain that only... Only through Him may we come to You, Father, for He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to You except through Him. Father, give us the gift of faith, and for those who have it, I pray that it would be strengthened. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.